Please take your seats. Kids, Miss Long's over there ready to take you out to children's worship. Wow, it's, it's a big church. Miss Long is going to have her hands full this morning. So uh, today we're going to look at the wedding uh, at Cana. Uh, familiar uh, passage to you if you've grown up in church at all. Uh, let me read to you John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. Uh, that text is printed in the bulletin also uh, up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, this is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, Then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So it has been my joy and privilege over uh, 32 years to do weddings. And um, uh, weddings, uh, as I want to say now uh, to all of you who are here today, who I performed your wedding, you know yours was the best, <laughs> right? Uh, the one that stands out most in my memory. So everybody can can, can relax now about that. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I get to do at weddings is uh, sometimes I get seated at the table with the most difficult uh family member. <laughs> and that's by design so that uh, I can uh, keep an eye on them and interact with them. And, and hopefully, you know, sitting with the pastor, maybe you won't misbehave quite as much as you might otherwise. And it gives me an opportunity to say, you know, like, hey, don't you think seven glasses of wine's enough? You know, so it is uh, it's a it's a, it's a lot of fun for me. I get to learn a lot about people, and and it it helps me understand also a lot of why we are the way we are when I interact with your families. And so there's just a lot of a lot of great stuff from that. Wedding weddings are wonderful, beautiful, uh, uh, just uh, pictures of fallen, redeemed 
humanity. It's great. Um, and so one of the things that you have to see about that is, is that the God that we worship loves weddings. In fact, Brian, you can put my notes up. You could, you could probably make a pretty good case uh, that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Uh, we read when God made uh, Adam in the garden, uh, the first time God says that something is not good, uh, as he scans over the things that he's made, is that it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he causes Adam to fall asleep. He takes from his side a rib and he forms for him his perfect mate, Eve, and presents her to him. And uh, Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And it was very good. And then we read at the end of the scriptures, as we've already read, uh, that all the kind of the pinnacle, the, the point at which all of history is leading is the marriage feast of the Lamb, where Jesus, as our bridegroom, gathers us together before him, and we feast and party for him before him, enjoying all of the things that he died to give us. So, so you have to see this as this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. It is a big thing. It is a, it is a picture for us. When, even when Paul wants us to see and understand the nature of the union that we have with Christ, he uses marriage as a metaphor for that. You know, when he, when he speaks in Ephesians about marriage, he ends up saying, really, well, I'm not talking about marriage as much as I'm talking about the union between Christ and his church. And so this is something that gets pictured over and over and over again. It is a, it's a big point uh, of, of, of the scripture. So it's not surprising then that the first miracle that Jesus does is at a wedding. But you have to think a little bit about the nature of this, this miracle. It's an unusual miracle. Not just that Jesus turns water into wine, but, but think about this. I mean, when you think about Jesus' miracles, what do you tend to think about? You tend to think about him healing people, right? You tend to think about him doing, you know, these remarkable things, feeding 5,000 people that are starving out somewhere in the wilderness, right? <clears throat> that there's some big need, like even a life and death need that only he can fix, that only he can do, right? And so here we have him. His first miracle is, you know, making wine from water at a wedding. It's a little unusual, isn't it? I mean, that's... That's, that's not typically what, what you would expect, right? Uh, I mean, you know, running out of wine at a wedding is, okay, that's a problem, but nobody's going to die, <laughs> right? Nobody has leprosy because of that. Uh, no, nobody's going to be crippled because of that. No, nobody is going to be bereft of a loved one because of that, right? And yet Jesus condescends in this to do this very gracious, loving, and generous act, right? So, so one, of the th- one of the things that is profound about that is that this really stands out. Uh, because this miracle, this first miracle that Jesus does, um, is not so much uh, for the benefit of, of the people there at the wedding, although they are certainly blessed, But Jesus does this miracle to benefit his disciples. Because what do we read happens as a result of this? His disciples believed in him. Right? Now, how do we know that his disciples believed in him? Because John, the disciple, is writing this. 
And he is testifying to the fact that he went to this wedding with Jesus and he saw Jesus turn the water to wine. And as a result of that, he believed in it. Right? So this, as we, as we unpack this, this is one of the things that you have to see about what, what, uh, uh, what John is getting at here is he wants us to, to appreciate and come to grips with the fact that this miracle here was not just to allow the wedding to go on, but it was an opportunity for Jesus to do something at the very outset of his ministry that would demonstrate to his disciples who he was. And that for the first time, they actually begin uh, to believe in him. One other thing that you have to, to, to note about this is that the Apostle John loves this theme of the, of the bridegroom uh, and, uh, and the bride. Because in the very next chapter, in John chapter 3, uh, he says this, using the words of John the Baptist. Next slide, Brian. Uh, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete he must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist sees himself basically as Jesus' best man, right? That, that his job is to point people to uh, the, the, the groom. You know, my, both of my sons have had the opportunity to be best men at weddings. And they'll, they've asked me, like, you know, Dad, you got any advice? And I'm like, yeah. People, sh- at the, after the wedding's over, they shouldn't remember a single thing about you. Your job is to be as unobtrusive and to be as unnoticed as possible because the attention is not on you. So give a sober toast and get out of the way. When they ask you for the ring, hand it to them and shut your mouth, right? <laughs> the, the, the groom must increase and you must decrease, right? That's, that's exactly what, what, uh, what, what needs to happen here. John the Baptist is recognizing that as, as he speaks, picking up again on this theme that uh, uh, is, is, runs, uh, runs throughout the scriptures. And so that's a, as we look at this wedding, as we see what's happening here, as we see Jesus doing this miracle, what I want you to understand about that today is that this was done not certainly just to bless those people there, but to teach us about the nature of our union and our relationship with the perfect bridegroom. So we're going to look at three things. Uh, the request uh, for Uh, that Mary makes uh, to Jesus, the miracle itself, and then what's the point of all this? So next slide. So so those of you who are moms here this morning probably were offended by this text, right? Because Jesus seems downright, I mean, he's mean, right? Doesn't it it seem like he's pretty rude to his mom? She just says to him, hey, they're out of wine. And he's like, woman? Right? I mean, that's kind of abrupt. You know, up until, you know, the day my mom died, if I ever spoke to her like that, she might have smacked me. Like, you don't talk to me like that, right? I mean, she she would not have put up with that. So as we read this, we think, what is going on here? What is what is Jesus doing? Well, the, the word woman probably culturally is a little hard for us, but it, it wouldn't be unlike a saying to, to your mom, you know, becoming very formal and saying, ma'am, right? Ma'am, what, what are you doing here, ma'am, right? So... Um, and what makes this text even more interesting is his words to her, uh, you know, what, what, uh, what does this have to do with me is the phrase that is used every other time in the Bible by demons. 
when Jesus is coming to interrupt them. They're like, hey, Jesus, you're, you're edu- you know, stay in your lane. You're getting in our territory. Well, in a way, that's what Jesus is saying to his mother. He's saying to her, look, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to be careful here because the, the fact is you can't just use my authority and my power kind of willy-nilly because I am here first and foremost for one reason. And my, 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 re- my, my reason for being here is not simply just to meet physical needs. My reason for being here is not simply to shine a light. Uh, my reason for being here is none of those things. That my reason for being here, the hour for which I have come, is that I am here to be the atoning sacrifice for your sin. And, and the way you get the benefit of that atoning sacrifice is by believing in me, not by being related to me. Right? And so he's being, being very clear to her that his, though he, he ultimately does what she asks him to do, what he is doing here is not something simply, uh, 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 that her access to him, her, uh, ability to get him to do this is not simply based on the fact that she is his mother, but primarily this is, he wants her not to overstep her bounds. That his primary allegiance is to his father in heaven. Right? So he's he's making that that very clear. So after all, you know, he does end up doing what she asks him to do, but primarily he's only doing this because this is moving him towards the ultimate goal of why he came. Um, so let's look at the miracle itself. So when we read this, you know, he fills these jars. There's six jars between twenty and thirty uh, gallons each uh, with with wine. So that seems like a lot of wine. You think? It seems like it. So let's take an average. Let's say it's 25 gallons each. So 6 times 25 is 150 gallons. Now they've already had some. We don't know how much, right? Wedding's been going on for a while. They ran out. And so when we read this, we think, wow, you know, this, this seems like a lot, like a whole lot. Well, it's not. Not really, because one of the things that, you know, we think about weddings uh, as something that we typically do on a Saturday afternoon for a couple of hours. Weddings in the first century in Palestine went on for days. Days. Lots of days. And everybody from the surrounding village, everybody that you're remotely uh, uh, related to, everybody who's like an auntie, and, you know, everybody's an auntie or everybody's an uncle, right? Whether they really are or not, gets invited to the wedding. So, so everybody's there. Uh, everybody's having a good time. And this is going to go on for days and days and days. So it's not, when, when you put it in that perspective, the fact is, yes, it's an ample amount of wine, but it's not an overabundance of wine. Um, and the other thing uh, uh, to notice about this is that... Uh, just like uh, in, in our situations where we might run out of food at a wedding or we might run out of wine at a wedding, there's kind of a social thing that's going on there, kind of a social faux pas, so kind of a, a thing where, you know, now you know that cousin Jim is going to talk about you because you were cheap at your kid's wedding because you didn't, you know, you didn't have enough food or you didn't have enough wine. The, the fact of the matter is this is not, the, the, this is going against social convention. 
right? And so when Mary comes to him, she's saying, look, it's not time for the wedding to be over. They need some more wine, right? Um, so Jesus tells the, the servants to take those six pots, fill them full of water, then to dip, get a dipper, dip some of the water out, take it to the master of ceremonies, and he is the one who tastes the wine, decides it's good. And what does he say? Well, he goes to the bridegroom and he says this, um, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, one of the things that you have to see about this is uh, uh, that this poor bridegroom who's there at the wedding, it's his responsibility, apparently, to be the one who supplies the wine. It's not the master. The master goes to the bridegroom and says, hey, you know, you, you put out the, 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 the good wine second. Nobody does that. You wait till people have had a few and their senses are dulled a little bit. And, and, and then, then you put out uh, the, the bad wine. It won't, it won't matter. But he, he puts out the bad wine first. And now as he runs out, Jesus supplies him with the really good wine, right? Now, Here's something to note about this. You know, uh, if I were the pastor doing this wedding, I would be very concerned about this couple because right here at the wedding, at the very beginning, the groom failed. He didn't plan. Not enough wine. He's a failure. On the day when when he's supposed to be... uh, doing and being all of these things on the days, really, that he's supposed to do this for his family and for his bride, he fails. Praise the Lord that Jesus is there uh, to do this for him. Let me just say to you, uh, those of you who are married, those of you who long to be married, uh, don't ever put on your spouse the expectation of perfection the expectation of meeting all your needs, the expectation of providing all for you because they'll fail. They fail. And without the work and without the provision of Jesus Christ here, uh, it would, uh, uh, this, this, this wedding would have ground to a halt. People would have gone home and that would have been it. This poor bridegroom, he fails. Jesus never fails. As our bridegroom. So we have to ask the question, you know, what, who was this miracle for? Well, the miracle certainly was to provide for the people. It was certainly there to, to uh, continue the party, but ultimately it was for the disciples' benefit and for our benefit as well to build our faith so that we could believe in him. Brian, next, next, next slide, please. And so one of the things that is so key about that is, is that Jesus sees this as an opportunity to begin in his own disciples and his own followers, teaching them, helping them to come to grips with who he is and what it is that he's come to do. And lastly, the point, right? Um, One of the things that John wants us to see about this text is that this miracle is a demonstration of the glory of Christ, right? That one of the things he, he wants us to see, now this is the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, right? 
John's really concerned about the glory of Christ. At the very beginning of his book, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is it important to see the glory of Christ? Why is it important to see him as unique, to see him as powerful, to see him as meek and merciful and gracious, to see him as the one and only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Why is it important for us to see his glory? Because when we get a glimpse of his glory, when we begin to see him for who he is, what happens to us is it calls forth faith. When we have a sense of the glory of Christ, when we have a sense of of his power and his work on our behalf, when we get a sense of his beauty, when we are we're struck by the fact that he is for us, that he is with us. And just as a bridegroom lavishes grace and mercy and lavishes provision upon his bride, Jesus is doing the same thing for us over and over and over again. But more than that. It's not just the sense that Jesus does this and he provides and he makes up for the failure of the bridegroom. But even more than that, he tells us that this miracle is pointing to his ultimate gift to his people. And that's this, when he says that his hour has not come. What does that hour mean? Next slide. Well, John repeats this over and over and over again, right? In John 7.30, he says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one had laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then John 12, now, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, right? You see, the thing that it manifests to us the glory of Christ the most is his hour, his hour of sacrifice, his hour of suffering. This was the whole point of of why he came, of why he did what he did was to to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Listen, you know, as, as important as it was for these people to have wine, to keep going into the wedding, what you need more than anything else is that your sins would be atoned for. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus does something very unique in this miracle. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the, the, to the water jars that are used for drinking. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, hey, turn up those, uh, you know, Diamond Springs, uh, water bottles there and I'll turn them into wine. The water that he's using there is the water that's used to bathe in. It's water that's used for purification rituals. It's the water that people use to symbolically put on their bodies to to show that they're cleaning away their sin. And so Jesus very specifically takes that water and turns it into wine. And what he's saying to us is that not only does he provide for us, but he purifies us. He cleans us. So that now there's no necessity for you to go and keep re-cleaning yourself or keep doing different rituals or whatever to clean yourself. Jesus has made you clean. He has purified you. Now, the, the, the problem with that for, for many of us is we don't believe that because what we see and what we feel about ourselves is shame and dirt and hiding and grit And these things that kind of make us unacceptable. And so what we do is we have a kind of a fake purification, kind of a fake way in which we cover this up. But what Jesus has done is he has purified us once and for all forever. 
When we read about the, that these uh, saints that have had their robes washed, not only are their robes washed, but their hearts, their souls, their bodies are washed forever and ever and ever. If you are in Christ, he has washed you. Not just that he's accepted you, but you're purified. He's changed you forever, right? And so that he has removed from you the shame of your sin. So, so the whole point of this is that as Jesus is coming to his hour to make atonement, the point of that atonement that he wants us to see in this text is that he's made purification for our sins. You and I spend a lot of time trying to work off the guilt of our sin and try to clean ourselves up, don't we? I know a lot of people that uh, don't, uh, that occasionally will not come to worship because they're ashamed or they hide or they keep secrets. Because if somebody really knew what was going on in my heart and my life. But the fact is, there is a place for us to come and lay hold of this morning by faith, the purification that Jesus makes for us. He's the one who cleans us. He's the one who purifies us by his atonement. Trust that. Give up trying to clean yourself up uh, because you won't be very effective at that. The disciples prepared the Passover and when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve and they were reclining at the table And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's use this prayer of confession. Uh, It's in the bulletin and also uh, up on the screens behind me. Lord, forgive us our sins against you and our neighbor. You are the great physician, giving new life to all who come. But we cling to our familiar sickness. You are the bridegroom, inviting us to feast on new wine. But we are slow to come to your table. You said you came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Forgive our pride and unbelief. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now ministering in his name. And he gave it to his disciples. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's our hope. That's not just our hope, that's our confession, and that is our plea. Our bridegroom has washed us clean. Uh, If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope, no other place to go for cleansing, you have forsaken your own self-cleansing, and you are trusting the work of Jesus Christ for you, you proclaim that to a body of believers, he invites you today to taste and see his goodness once again. Uh, As the elders and deacons come down front uh, to assist me, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, and all the bread is bread that is gluten-free.